0: Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Second Samuel chapter 6, as we continue following the life of David, if you want to get the attention of one of the ushers, if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with us. In it, I am going to read tonight from the beginning of the chapter, even though we we studied half of it last week, and I'm going to read up through verse 19, just for context, and for those of you that maybe weren't with us last week, um, this message tonight is kind of of the same flavor as last week's message, which was putting God first. It's kind of the same chapter, same story, um, but there's more to it, and I'm excited to bring that to you. I'm going to ask you to hang with me. I'm going to go deep. Tonight, but probably not too long, so I won't make you uh, hold on too long, but, uh, but I want you to pay attention. But let's read it. Let me read from verse one. I'm going to read through verse 19, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into it. So it says, It says that again David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts. That dwells between the cherubim. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was at Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood even on harps and psalteries and timbrels and cornets and on cymbals. And when they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how shall the ark of God come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertains unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they that bear the ark, or they that carried the ark of the Lord, had gone six paces, or about 30 feet, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, that's David's wife, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place in the midst. I'm going to read that line again. In his place in the midst or in the center of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And as soon as David had made an end of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well to the women as men, to everyone, a cake of bread, and a good piece of flesh or a piece of meat and a flagon of wine so all the people departed everyone to his house and so father we just come to you tonight and we bring this text to you and and lord we we know that you want to speak to us today in in the context of this passage in a very personal and meaningful and helpful way and so we Uh, lift our hearts to you, and we lift this time to you. And I pray, Lord, tonight for everyone here, that tonight our walk with you would be changed and revolutionized by the truth and the meaning behind this passage and how it connects to us today. So would you please open up our hearts and our minds? Would you give us strength and energy by your spirit to hear your voice and to live for you? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, where we last left David last week, we saw that out of a heart of gratitude, Out of honor, out of a sense of duty, with goodwill and with the best of intentions, David desired to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into the city that has now become the capital or the central place in a united Israel. The reason for this is because the Ark of God represents the very person and presence of God. The Ark was the most holy Relic in Old Testament worship, and it was covered with the mercy seat, which represented the throne of God or the very presence of God in heaven. And so what David is symbolically and yet spiritually and practically doing is he is saying, God, I want you to be the center of our national identity and of who we are as a people. That's what David wants, our national identity to be centered on God the person of God, the presence of God, the worship of God. So what David did is he prepared a place, he set a date, he arranged a celebration, and he made full preparations for the ark now to be brought into the place. The one thing that David failed to do was to consult with anyone about how the ark was to be moved. Now, The proper way that the ark was to be moved is that it was to be carried by the priests. It was to be first in procession and it was to be separate from the multitude. It was something that was to be venerated and honored and esteemed because God is to be venerated and honored and esteemed because he is holy and it is to be done in reverence and in holiness. That's the way that it's supposed to be done. That's not how David did it the first time. The first time, David hired curators instead of priests. The people that had been keeping watch over the ark that were not priests and Levites, David employed them in bringing the ark forward. That was not the way it was to be done. The ark was to be carried, but David constructed a new cart. He made a mechanism, a vehicle that the ark would be transported on, not the way that God wanted it to be done but that's what David did. The ark was to go first, but that's not what David did. David had the ark surrounded. There was all kinds of instruments and and noise going on, celebration. Ahio, one of the curators, was ahead of the ark, which was never to be done that way. And it was a very casual procession. It was celebratory. It was joyful. It was big. It was exciting. It was done well, but it wasn't done the way God wanted. Now, God kind of went along with it. He He was tolerating this whole thing until the cart shook and Uzzah reached up and steadied the ark. And because he touched it, which again, another thing that was forbidden, even the priests weren't to touch it, but were to carry it by the staves, the staffs that went through the rings. As soon as he touched it, God said, okay, the party's over. And Uzzah was smitten there for his error, and everyone saw what happened, and the whole thing stopped immediately. This whole party came to an end because everyone was enjoying it, but God wasn't enjoying it. Now, what we understand is that in this whole thing, God felt misrepresented. He did not want the people to have that impression of him that David was putting forth, which was why God interrupted in the way that he did. And we saw that David, seeing Uzzah drop dead there, that he became displeased. You could say that David was a little bit offended. David was probably a little bit angry at the whole thing. And it says that he was afraid, that David was afraid of the Lord that day because of this whole thing. Let me ask you, have you guys ever been displeased with the Lord over something that he's done? Has there ever been a time in your life where maybe you have been living the way that the best that you can, you've been doing things with the best intentions that you can, your motives, everything is in the right place as far as you know, but God does something that just kind of frustrates the direction that you're going, and your response, your reaction to it is that you're displeased with the Lord like David was. Now, I'm not talking to or about people that don't know God. Because if you don't know God and you're not living for God, then that's just perpetually where you live. You're probably always angry at God. Because you're just doing whatever you want and thinking that God's going to get behind you and help you in some way. And the Bible says that God is angry with with the wicked every day. And so there's this whole war going on between you and God. and, And you're just constantly being frustrated in what you're doing because you're living completely out of harmony and out of fellowship with God. I'm not talking to you because you should be angry at God, but you deserve to be. Because you're like a blind person that keeps walking into a wall and blaming God for it. And that's your fault because God's told you how to see, but you don't want to see the way God told you to see. So you just go on and be angry. I'm not talking to you, okay? I'm talking to the Christian. I'm talking to the person that has received Christ, the person that has known the blessing of God, that has a history with God, that has been walking with God, that is seeking to prepare their way before him, that's seeking to grow and advance in the things of God, and all of a sudden something happens that is completely humiliating to you, like this was for David, and it's completely frustrating to you, and that makes you say, do I even know you, God? That's who I'm talking to. That's what David is feeling here. And I understand David. I can sympathize with David in this whole thing because he's doing this out of love, out of honor and respect for God. He's doing this out of a desire to bring blessing from God upon the people that he is leading. David, thus far, has seen nothing but God's goodness and God's favor and God just blessing everything that he does And then suddenly, out of the blue, unexpected, at the worst possible moment, David's best effort isn't good enough for God. And that's the way David is seeing and viewing this. And so it says that David was displeased. He became afraid. And then he kind of withdrew. He said his response, and we read it in verse 10. He said, I'm not going to bring the ark. Fine, God. If you're not going to go along with the show, if you don't want to be in Jerusalem, then I'm not going to bring you into Jerusalem. You can stay somewhere on the outside. That was David's response, okay? So David ships the ark to Obed-Edom. Now you got to wonder, did David like Obed-Edom? You know, because he just saw someone die because of the ark. He's afraid of the ark, and he's like, "What should I do with it?" Send it to Obed. He was my rival in high school. Let's just see, see how, how that goes down. And so he sends it there. It's there for three months. And then David hears that Obed-Edom in his house is blessed because of the Ark of God, because of the presence of God that is there. Now, here's one of the things that I absolutely love about David is that David is not stubborn. He is the king. He's respectable and he's respected, but he's not stubborn. And so when he hears that the house of Obed-Edom is blessed because the presence of the ark is there, it doesn't ignite jealousy or bitterness or resentment in David, but rather it ignites hope in David. He takes three months. He cools off a little bit. He recovers. He licks his wounds, okay? He probably, just like us, didn't go to synagogue for a couple weeks, Probably left his Bible on the shelf and said, yeah, I'll get, you know, whatever, God. You know, he, he, he was normal. He was human just like we are, you know. But when he hears that Obed-Edom's household was blessed, David takes a step back and he reflects and he thinks about a couple things. He says, okay, I know that God is for me. I know that God loves me, that he's not against me in the whole thing. I know that he's not finished with me. So let me stop and think about this for a minute. And he asks a very important question. He says, where did I go wrong? Now, that is a very uncommon question in today's world, isn't it? I mean, really, when's the last time that you honestly asked yourself the question, where did I go wrong? I think that one of the marks of the last days, in fact, I know it is because the Bible says it, is that people will become very stubborn, and they'll become so self-absorbed and so self-affirmed that they will never ask the question, where did I go wrong? Because th- in their mind, there is no such thing as wrong. Pastor Bobby shared from Revelation chapter 16 this past Sunday, and, and he shared very clearly, God says very clearly, that there's going to come a point when even when God is throwing hailstones on humanity for their rebellion and idolatry and sorcery, that they're going to be like, what, why, what? You know? Like they won't repent. And I think we're living in a time where we need to check ourselves in that. Like, am I willing to take a step back when things don't go my way and ask the question, where am I wrong in this? And that's what David does. He says, where did I go wrong? Okay. So he inquires. He asks some questions, no doubt. He begins to maybe dig into the word a little bit. What is the proper way? It wasn't bad for me to want to bring the ark in. That was a good desire. But the way that I went about it, the how of bringing God into the center of national life, that's where the error was. So what did I do wrong, okay? And David comes to the realization, I'm reading between the lines, but it's clear by David's second attempt at this, that he realized that he dishonored God by the way he presented him or represented him or put him forth. There was probably a little bit too much pomp and ceremony in it. It misrepresented God. God didn't want the focus to be on the celebration and the preparation and the majesty of the whole thing. He wanted it to be on him, on his holiness, on his simplicity. David Probably realized that there was a little bit too much self representation in it. That the casual observer, the onlooker watching the ceremony that day, would be very impressed with how David made preparations. Wow. David really knows how to put on a ceremony. Look at those 30,000 elite troops and the way that they're marching in perfect order. Wow, listen to the music and the excellence with which it is being played and put forth. And look at this procession. And did you guys see that cart? Did the Pope see that cart? that's an amazing cart that's carrying God and how creative and how amazing. And and there was a little bit too much self-representation A reflection on David's reputation in the way the whole thing was going down. And David had to have the humility to admit that and to realize that God was not pleased overall. It wasn't just Uzzah, but the whole thing was just a misrepresentation of the person of God. And so David says, I'm going to try this again and I'm going to do it a little bit differently. And so he does it differently. And there are six things that David did differently that we read about in in the verses where David now properly brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Number one is that he did it with gladness instead of with excellence. It says that in verse uh, 12. It says that he did it with gladness. All right. Now, gladness is a condition of the heart. That's something that is going on inside of you, a sincere reaction to what's going on around you. Excellence is something that you do to create an image or a picture or a perception of something. And God is always concerned not with what things appear on the outside but with what is going on on the inside, what's the heart behind it. And God is not so much concerned with the excellence of how something is done rather than the emotion and the heart that's behind it. And so David this time says, forget the 30,000 elite troops and the, the, the procession and the parade, and let's get our heart right before God. Let's do this with gladness. Number two, he had the priests carry the ark instead of setting it on a new cart, which was what God wanted. It was to be carried by the priests and the Levites instead of experts driving God. He wanted people called by God presenting him, representing him. Number three, in verse 13 again, it was done with blood instead of with majesty. Every six paces, which I find interesting because six is the number of man. And man is always imperfect, thus six is the imperfect number. And you get the idea that David said, okay, we are going to acknowledge our flaws, we're going to acknowledge the fact that we are unrighteous by every six paces before we even try to take the step of perfection. We're just going to say, I can't. And we're going to offer an offering again. And we remember this is all about the blood and not about what we do. It's going to be done with blood because blood is always the way God is to be represented. The sacrificial offering ultimately of his son, Jesus, that is the way that God is brought in. And then number four, it is to be done with humility instead of in pride. In verse 14, we are told that David was wearing a linen ephod, which means that David took off his royal robes. He took off the crown that represented his position, and he was wearing basically underwear, not in Not in the shame sense, but what they would wear underneath the common clothing. He was setting aside his position in his majesty, and he was saying, I am on the same level as every other Israelite in this thing, and God only is the one that will be exalted. And so he removed his royalty. He clothes himself in humility. He puts aside his pride. Number five, he brings God the ark with simplicity instead of with complexity. Did you read about all the instruments back in the early verses that David had the first time? We got harps and cornets and strings and a whole orchestra that's been, and and this time it's just the trumpet. The trumpet and the shouting of voices. David says, forget the complexity. God is not a God of complexity. He doesn't require what is beyond the capability of the common human being to bring. And so forget all that. Trumpet, we'll shout, and we're going to bring the ark of God. Forget the, the, the complexity. And then finally, in verses 14 and 16, David brings energy in place of dignity. Now, we know that when David danced, it wasn't pretty. Have you ever seen anybody ugly dance before? Yeah, you'll go to a wedding, and that person that shouldn't be out on the dance floor... You know, and, and you get the idea that that was David because because his wife saw him and she slaps her forehead and she goes, "I cannot believe what I am seeing right now." But for David, it was an act of worship, wherein he didn't care how undignified he appeared in the eyes of the people that he was leading, because he wasn't doing it for them; he was doing it for God. And it didn't matter if he was dignified because he wanted to to give his full energy and strength. He wanted to love the Lord with all of his strength. It is a completely different representation of God the second time than it was the first time. And this is how God wanted to be presented to the people. He wanted to be born, brought in by the priests. He wanted it to be about his presence. And he wanted it to be about the blood. Okay, This is who God is, not how David originally represented him, and that was important to God. And so we're told in verse 17 that the ark of God, the presence of God, was ultimately brought in and set, it says in the verse, I love it, it says in his place in the midst, in God's place in the center. It's where he belongs, and it's in the center. That's where David Brought him. And and the, the title of the message tonight is Putting God in His Place. And the question is Is God in the center, in the midst, in His place? Okay. Now, ultimately, David does this. He brings God in, sets him in the midst, and then as a full representation of who God is, once it is over and God is placed there, David gives to every citizen in Israel a loaf of bread, a steak and a flagon of wine to represent the giving nature of God. This isn't tax stimulus. That's not what's going on where David's just like, "I'm going to give back." but this is this is who God is. This is the blessing of God. This is what he wants to do in our lives is he wants to provide. He's a giving God. He's a good God. And then David goes home, and we didn't read the verses, but in the rest of the chapter, that chunk of verses, verse 20 through 23, David now goes home to bless his own household, and he is met by a woman who is not happy. (laughs) That is, Michal, the one who despised David in her heart, and she was not pleased with the way David represented himself, or the way he represented uh, the nation in this ceremony, she contends with David over it, and she mocks him, and she says, was not the king of Israel glorious today in the way that he danced in his underwear in front of the maidens of Israel? And David stood up to this woman, and he said that it was before the Lord that I danced, not before any human being. And the Lord chose me over your father Saul, and I will be yet even more undignified than this in the presence of my God. And the result of Michal's mockery of David is that David then kind of put her away and she never bore children. She was barren for the rest of her life because of the way that she mocked David in this whole thing. And then the chapter ends. All all that to say is that she disapproves. Listen, somebody is going to be displeased. Okay? The way that when you worship God, you'd rather have it be your wife or your husband, than God. God was displeased the first time, and, and McCall was, she was like, this is great. I mean, wow, look at, this is elite. This is amazing. The second time, God is pleased, and McCall's like, I cannot believe this is happening. The whole thing. Someone is gonna be grieved in the whole thing. But the question that we come to as we consider all of this that happened in this chapter and how it's recorded in the Bible is what in the world does this have to say to you and I today? Because the Bible tells us that the things which were spoken in times past are written for our admonition. And these things that were in the Old Covenant, that they are written for examples for us upon whom the ends of the world are come. And the Bible is very clear that God continues to speak through that which was spoken. So what does this have to say to you and I concerning our walk with God and God's place within our life? In the new covenant, which is what we are a part of, in the New Testament, the church, Christians, we are the people of God in today's day and age. For you and I, the, the dwelling place of God is not in a building. There is no tabernacle or temple or building or place where we go to get into the presence of God. In the new covenant, the temple of God or the place where God dwells is within the hearts of his people. He lives inside of human bodies. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the apostle Paul is explaining this to the church in Corinth. And he says this in verse 14. He says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Speaking about uh, covenants, partnerships, marriages. He says, for what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness and what communion has light with darkness? And what concord or harmony does Christ have with Belial or the devil? Or what part does he that believes have with an infidel or an unbeliever? And listen, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Paul says it another way prior to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Listen to this language. He says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure, the glory of God, the light of God, the presence of Christ, the person of the living God. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, speaking of our bodies, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. God is, His desire always has been and is and is being fulfilled today that he dwells in the hearts of those that belong to him. You and I, we are the temple. Your body is the temple of the living God. And just as the temple in the Old Testament had different areas and rooms, so also your body has different areas. And the temple had one place called the Holy of Holies, which was where the ark was, the presence of God. And the human heart, the deepest unseen secret place of your life, that is the place that God desires to dwell. That is his place in the world today. Your heart in the very center, in mine, when you believe in God, okay? Now, David in the text, he realized... That God was supposed to be central. God was supposed to be in the middle, in the midst. But he was somewhere way on the outskirts. He was near Kadesh, which was way on the border. Where, where, where That's where God, God's in the margin. He's in margin country. I've got God kind of way out there. He's in, but he's way out there. And I want God to be in the center. I want him to be in the middle. I want him to be The identity and the driving force, the glory and the power behind who we are as a people. So I want to bring God from the margin lands, and I want to put him in the center. But when David made the move to do it, he failed. He did it improperly, and it didn't work out. And the result was that David was frustrated, he was infuriated, he became fearful because he failed in his attempt to make God central, and so he pushed God back out to the margins. Now listen, this happens to Christians all the time. You're born again. You accept Christ, he comes into your life. You know that you're changed, you begin to grow. The word of God begins to make sense. You see things happening in your life. Strongholds are being broken. You begin to grow. But you realize that in the center of your being, there are affections and things driving you that are are, are not supposed to be there. And you, you sense God is kind of on the outside. He's in my life, but he's in the margin lands. He's near the border of the territories. And so, God, you've been good to me. God, I know that you're true. You've called me to eternal life. You're supposed to be in the center. So God, I want to bring you into the center of my life. I want you to be in the middle. I want you to be in your place. But there's some things there right now, and I need to get rid of those things because they're in the place where you're supposed to be. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean that out, and then I'm going to bring God in. And we say that. We want to do that. That's our desire. It's a good desire. It's a pure motive. It's out of honor and respect of God. It's out of acknowledging the truth. And then we try. And then we fail. We want God to be in the middle. And and we kind of begin to clear out the place. But then something breaks. Something goes wrong. We try to bring God in. We, We wrestle against the things that are competing with God for our affections. And our strength, by the way, did you know that Uzza means strength? Uzzah, the man that died. Our, our strength fails, and it dies, and, 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 and all of a sudden we're frustrated because I want God to be in the middle, but every time I try to make God the middle, all of my flaws just are f- flung in my face, and I can't seem to get him there, and I'm just frustrated. And I'm kind of angry because I'm seeing other people being blessed, but I'm not experiencing that blessing in my life. I want him first, but every time I try, I fail. Okay? Now listen, here's the issue with you and me. The issue is not what we're trying to do because God wants to be in the center of our lives. That's his place. It's how we are trying to bring God in. That's where the issue is. Now, Paul, the apostle, understood this struggle. The man who probably knew God best of the New Testament saints going back through, he knew this struggle of wanting God to be in the center, knowing that that's supposed to be, but not knowing how to do it. Let me read you his words. It's Romans chapter seven, and it's in verse 18. Listen to what Paul says. He says, for I know, that in me, that is in my flesh, my human fallen, flawed flesh, my human nature, dwells no good thing. For to will, that is to want the things of God, to want God to be central, for to will is present with me. I want God in the middle. I know that's what's right. But what's the word? How? But how to perform that which is good, I find not. I want what God wants. We want the same thing. I just don't know how to bring him in. And then he describes the frustration of the failure. Watch verse 19. He says, for the good that I would, that I want, I don't do. But the evil that I don't want to do, that I find myself doing. Now, if I do that which I would not, that is the evil, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, watch verse 21. He says, I find then a law. Now, the law he's talking about is like gravity. What is gravity? What goes up? There is a force, a law of gravity. He says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Every time I try to rise up, the force of evil that is in me is too powerful for me and I cannot overcome its force. It's a law that is more powerful than I can overcome. For, verse 22, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my body warring against the law of my mind, what I want, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Okay, here's what Paul is trying to say. He's saying, listen, if you want God in the center of your life, if you want God to be central to your being, then the way that you do that, ready for it? Here it is. Just do what the Bible says. That's it. If you want God in the center, then just do what the Bible says. That's all you've got to do. Okay, so your marriage is frustrating, and it's not blessed by God. And you say, God, I want you in in the center. Okay, so just do what the Bible says. Just love your wife like Christ loved the church. Just do it. Women, respect your husbands. Men, respect. Don't be resentful for the things that your wives are doing. Just stop it. Just stop. Do what the Bible says. Okay? Your finances are cursed. You, you want God's center, and you know that, that there's, there, you're not trying to be rich. You just want to survive and not have to worry and not think about it. You just, but it's cursed. Let's just do what the Bible says work harder. Okay? Give more. That's it. Just do, spend less. These are simple biblical truths. Just do what the Bible says. You're living in constant guilt. You know that, God, you came to free me from guilt and condemnation, that this is your will for my life, but I'm constantly suffering with guilt. Listen, just do what the Bible says. Stop sinning. Just stop it. Okay, stop drinking alcohol. Stop right now. Just stop it. Stop the thing, the addiction, the thing that is constantly making you feel guilty and shameful. Just stop. Do what the Bible says for crying out loud already. Your mind is unsettled. You're obsessing. You can't stop thinking. It's playing over and over and over again. Stop it. Okay? Just take captive every thought. That's what the Bible says. Just take the thought captive and stop it right now. Okay? Stop thinking irrationally and obsessively and constantly just stop. All right, that's the end of the service. Let's pray. We can go home. We, 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 have, we have the answer, okay? Listen, don't you wish? Don't you wish? Because here's the problem, and this is what Paul is, is basically saying in Romans 7. He's saying that the Bible can tell me what to do, but that's all it can do. It can tell me what to do to have a God-centered life, but what the Bible cannot do is that the Bible cannot give me a desire to do those things, nor can the Bible give me the power to do those things. It can simply tell me what to do, and it stops right there. Now listen, if you don't have a desire to do the things that God tells you to do, and if you don't have power to do the things that God tells you to do, then the Bible is constantly mocking you. Because it is constantly putting before you, this is a God-centered life. This is a blessed life. This is the way it's supposed to be. And you can't do it. And it's mocking me constantly because it's telling me what to do, but I can't find the how. How do I go about doing these whole things? But I believe it, and I want it, and so I try. And so in my trying, what do I do? I create mechanisms. I create carts to try to bring God into the center place where he wants to be. I put a swear jar on the kitchen table. And every time that word, those words come out of my mouth, I'm going to put $20 in the swear jar, and and I know it's going to hurt enough that my language will be reformed. Then God will come into the center. And $17,000 later... I step on a Lego in the middle of the night and I'm paying for my kids' college. I promise that I'm going to pray for every person that I'm tempted to judge. And I put my best effort into it, but I fail. I put covenant eyes on my web browser so that three people are emailed a list every night of all the websites that I went to. And then I slowly unfriend all three of those people. I try as a mechanism, I'm going to do it. I I, I sign up for the Mark Patrick seminar. I'm going to lose weight and quit smoking by hypnosis. I'm going to beat this thing and I'm going to bring God in. It's going to happen. I'm going to do it. I'm going to get this right. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to ooze this and roll up my sleeves and I'm going to help bring God into the center. And you know what happens? It doesn't work. Your promises, your mechanisms, your carts, your efforts to try to bring God into the center of your life, they fall short every time, okay? And I, you and I, like Paul, our issue every time is not the what. We know what to do. It's the how. Paul said, I find a law that when I would do good, evil is there. When I would go up, gravity is there. And so Paul's solution to the problem is given to us in verse 24 of Romans chapter 7. Listen to what he says. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? It's not a how, it's a who. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. This is my struggle. But the the, the deliverance, the answer is not in a how. It's in a who. That's who it is. It's through Jesus Christ at the pinnacle of my frustration." When I can't try any harder, or I have no strength, or I don't want to, and I just want God in Kadesh because I'm sick of trying so hard. At that point, at the pinnacle of it, I realize that I've been trying the wrong way. It isn't about my efforts, my promising, my reforming my behavior. It's about something higher, something stronger that God has provided in the person of his son. That that's the answer somewhere in that and just like David, he realized, no, no, no. it's not the cart, it's the priest. It's not the cart that brings God into the middle, it's the priest that brings God into the middle. You say, what is the priest? There is one priest. Who is it? It's Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it says that there is one mediator between God and men. A mediator is a priest. Someone who stands in the gap between the two. There is one mediator between God and men. It is the man, Christ Jesus. He is the one that brings God center. It is the priests. Not only is it the priests, but it is through the blood. What is the blood? The sacrifice. Every six paces, there were offerings that were made. It was bloody, it was a reminder that it's messy. And it isn't about our music, our ceremony, our soldiers, our strength. It's about the blood. It's because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It is because he that knew no sin became sin for us. That we now can become the righteousness of God, not because of what we do, but because of what he did. And my faith cannot be in me and in my effort and in my knowledge and in my strength. But my faith must be in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross and that he has made me righteous through his blood. It is through Jesus and his sacrifice that God is brought in. My place in the whole thing is like David to prepare the place. That's what David did. He said, I'm preparing the place. God, this is the place where you're to go. You say, okay, this is great. I love the illustration. I'm tracking with you. I'm with you in the whole thing. But here's the problem. Here's where the check engine light like goes on. It's this, David brought the ark in and it, and it happened. The priest did it. There was celebration that happened and then it was done. He was there and that's where he was. I bring God in and the temptations don't go away. I get a little victory through Jesus and I'm still struggling. And next thing I know, where did God go? I left him right here in the middle And now he's back on the outskirts again. How do I keep him there? Romans chapter 8. Let's follow Paul's thought just a tiny bit further. Because he gives us the answer. He says in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Meaning that it's not by your effort, but it is by what God has provided in the person of his spirit. Now here's what that is. He says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Remember the law of gravity that we saw in the last chapter where every time he would try to rise up, evil would bring him back down? What he's saying is that that law doesn't go away. If if you try, you're always going to fail. But what he's saying is that God, in the person of his son, listen to me, has provided a more powerful law that overrules the strength of the law of sin and death. He calls it the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And he says that that law has made us free from the power of the law of sin and death. How? Verse 3. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh... God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, watch this, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Do you see that? Not by us, not even for us. He says it's fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that when you prepare the place by saying, God, it's open, come. And not by my effort, but by your son, the mediator, and the blood that he shed upon the cross, I open my heart for you to be central in my life, and I want your spirit, your presence, your person to live inside of me. Then what happens is that God comes into your life, and he lives through you, giving you the desire and the power to live his commands from the inside. Not you trying, not what would Jesus do and I'm going to copy and mimic him and try harder. No, God, I'm surrendering to you and I want you to bring your power into my life and do it through me. I had a conversation with my dad years ago that has taunted me my whole life. And he he was talking about selling sales, and it was kind of a flippant thing. He was talking about someone else, and he was uh, saying like, "Oh, this guy, he's this, you know." But he sells things, and that's good because you have to sell something in this world to get by. And when he said that, it was like it was like death. It was like, "Wait, you have to sell something to get by in this world." I hate selling. I can't sell. I can't sell. I can't sell something that's a penny. I can't sell. I hate selling. And that has taunted me ever since. Okay? I have a friend who is so good at selling that he gets people excited about spending money. Like, they're like, how? I I can't even find my credit card. I just want to give you you everything. And I marvel at it because I'm so bad at it. Okay? I wish I was good. I wish I could do it. Now, if I took lessons from my friend, he's probably listening right now. If I took lessons from my friend as a how to sell and I, and I did everything that he taught me and, and I, and I mimicked it and, and I, the, the, the way it's being said, the way it's being presented, the joy in my face, the concern for the well-being of the person, you know, the, if I did everything that they did, you know what? They still would not buy from me. Because I can't do it. I I just, it's not in me. I don't have the power. But if my friend could get in me and he could do the selling through me, using my body as the medium, then now maybe I could make a sale and get something done. But as long as it's by my effort to try to do something that I was clearly not made to do, I cannot do it. And you cannot bring God into the center of your life. Only Jesus can do it. And then, once we allow him in, only Jesus can live through us the kind of life that would make you even want to have him there in the first place. You ever stop and think about that? Why didn't David just leave the ark in Kadesh? I mean, it was there. It was fine. David was doing great. Why did he even want God in the middle? Do you know why? Because he wanted the kind of life for Israel that Israel would have if God was in the middle. And the kind of life that God wants you to have is the kind of life that you can have when God is in the middle. And when we surrender and we say, God, not by my might or by my power, but I open my heart to the person and work of your Holy Spirit, That you, Jesus, would carry the presence of God into my life and that you would live through me the things that I cannot live through myself. That's where the power is. I was prepping for this message and I'm not lying to you, I wouldn't want to do that and and I wouldn't say this, but I had a desire. In the middle of preparing this message, I had a desire to do something that was completely contrary to the person and character of Christ. And I recognized it when it came. And I was thinking about these things and and I said these words to God. I said, God... There is a desire in my heart right now that is evidence that your spirit is not where it's supposed to be in that area of my life. And yet you said that you want to be in that place. And so, God, not by my effort, but by the power and person of your spirit, I invite you into that part of my heart right now that you would be the Lord. And you know what happened? In the most simple and beautiful and gracious way, it vaporized, it was gone. And, and it was such a joyful thing. It was so simple. It wasn't effort. It wasn't like, oh, God, what are you doing? You know, it was just let God in. It's that simple. Let God in. I wonder, and I ask the question as we close, is God in his place in the midst of your heart tonight? Are you frustrated right now with your Christian experience? Are you watching Obed-Edom and his household be blessed while you are kind of frustrated, mad at God for the things that he's doing? Here's the answer. Trust Jesus only. He is the priest that brings God in. He is the sacrifice that makes us qualified. And he is the power then to bring the blessing out and through and to our lives that having God in that place will be. Do you trust him? It's all about faith. Do you trust him? Father, we just want to thank you tonight for this. And I know it's deep, Lord, but it's so real. And it's so needed. And it's so much what you provided. And it's what sets you apart from every other deity or name or religion. (laughs) It's that you supply the power and the desire to do what you ask of us. And it's so sweet, Lord. And so my prayer tonight, Lord, is for all of us here. That not one of us, Lord, would live with you in the borderlands. That you wouldn't be marginalized in any of our lives, but that you would have your place in that even right now, in this moment, that Jesus, you would bring the person, presence of God into the very center of who we are and all that it means. And that in one moment, Lord, you would change our desires, you would change the way we think, our mechanisms our strategies, our coping habits, our addictions, and that, Jesus, you would form us and make us like a potter does clay to be in the image of the Son of God. So help us, Lord. And I pray for anyone here in this room right now that is crying out inside and saying, Jesus, please, I want you to be the center, that, God, you would come in and that you would do that in us now. So we ask, Lord, that you would take your place in the midst and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, Leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.